Welcome to the October 24th, uh, 2019 QPSC. Um, uh, let's uh, uh, welcome to everybody and a reminder that our convention is to move immediately to closed session after roll call. To remind everyone, closed session is an 1157 protected discussion. It's used to discuss confidential matters related to the medical staff, accreditation, and risk management. If you're not directly related to one of these discussions, we ask you to kindly rejoin us, thank you, um, uh, during the open session, which today will start approximately around 3.10. So with that, we move into closed session. Thank you. Can we do roll? Uh, sorry, yes, our roll call. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Bouquet? Oops, sorry. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Uh, Trustee Jensen is not here today. We do have a quorum. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, we've finished closed session. Welcome back to the October 24th QPSC. We've already done roll call and completed closed session. With that, we'll move into item uh, B, the consent agenda. Uh, may I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda? So moved. I second. And with that, I'll open it up for dialogue. Uh, item B1, the minutes looked pretty good. Item B2, wow, that was a lot of reading. Page 14 to 265. That's 34 Highland uh, policies and procedures, two for John George, and 19 for the system. Um, and I will make note that it looks like um, cardiovascular and imaging services were quite busy because almost all of them belong to them. So, uh, well, kudos to that team. Item B3 are privileging forms, uh, which involve uh, extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenation slash extracorporeal life support uh, privileges. Uh, any questions about that? If they need to be, we can uh, uh, divert those to Dr. Ballard, who, uh, who has a full understanding of that. There's also an Alameda Hospital surgery privilege form. Apparently, urology previously did not have a foreign body removal uh, 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 element within their privileging. So. Uh, uh, we'll leave that one for uh, uh, your, your imagination. Um, so um, with that, um, any discussion about any of these items? A lot of reading. No? All in favor of approving uh, the consent agenda, B1 through B3? Opposed? Abstentions? Excellent. The motion carries. We now move to item C. Wow, that is moving fast. Item C, uh, the QPSC uh, 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 chair moment, will continue with our, our journal club. Two articles which, which I selected for this month. Um, one is uh, entitled, The Normalization of Deviance in Healthcare Delivery. This is sort of one of the seminal articles on this subject, I, uh, uh, geeking out with the quality people. Uh, Darshan probably has read this uh, before, uh, and uh, I'm sure Tanvir as well. Um, I think this should be standard reading for, all, for work for all of us who do, uh, who care about quality, which should be all of us. Uh, I just want to read a few excerpts from it. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit meaty. It's about 13 pages, uh, and it's about 10 years old, but I just want to uh, take a few of the extractions that I took home from this article. In the opening paragraph, over the last decade, hospital safety personnel have gradually become disabused of a long-standing but incorrect belief that harm-causing medical errors, such as wrong-side surgeries or retained surgical instruments, result from a single individual doing something inexplicably stupid. Rather, contemporary research on mega-disasters has consistently shown that major accidents require multiple people, 
committing multiple, often seemingly innocuous mistakes that breach an organization's fail-safe mechanisms, defenses or safety nets, and result in serious harm. In other words, mistakes such as failing to check or record a lab finding, ordering the wrong drug, or entering a lab finding in the wrong patient's chart are usually not enough to guarantee an occurrence of harm. The recipe for disaster additionally requires these errors, lapses, or mistakes to go unattended, unappreciated, or unresolved for an extended period of time. Then this article goes on to give a series of recommendations, and I think for any leader in our organization, this is, this is, a, this is a good article to read. Um, it's a little bit dense, so I followed it up with one which is only two or three pages. This comes from the, uh, the Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety out of Boston, which has some associations with the, uh, the Harvard system. I'm going to kind of jump to the best practices, which actually had some, uh, had some nice comments. First, the drift towards riskier practices cannot be eliminated, but it can be managed. The tendency to migrate is just too natural. Some migration is, in fact, beneficial since it, help, since it helps the group develop shortcuts that maintain safe operations in the face of ever-changing technology and demand. Two, typical safety reporting systems, which focus on incidents, will not spot migration. So this is for our quality team. Again, typical safety reporting systems will not spot this migration. The tendency to drift is a social, not individual phenomenon. By the time a group is operating in the gray zone, by the time a group is operating in the gray zone, its members no longer perceive many routine safety violations as unsafe, and thus will not even notice, much less report them in an event-focused system. So uh, there's a little bit of wisdom there that I, I'd never really considered. To, de to detect migration, you need a proactive system that looks for progressive drift, not reactive controls. They suggest that regular short periods of systematic observation may be needed, and the observers should be from outside the group being watched, or they will be affected by the social biases that are causing the migration in the first place. And last, the best defense involves social controls, not more rules. Quote, human beings are never fully, uh, never fully comply with rules, and some flexibility with regulations and standards is probably required in complex socio-technical work. They say, however, more extreme violations may lead to a dangerous loss of control of both individuals and systems. So again, I, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about deviance uh, uh, of, of safety, as, especially in light of our, our surveys and many of the elements which come and just through our regular discussion. And uh, I thought this was a, a good thing to add into our library of considerations and we think. So I'll open it up for dialogue, if any. That's, uh, okay. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I think that's a theme that has uh, always uh, <coughs> like followed us. Uh, it's very interesting, the story of, of this nomenclature that it came by Diana Vaughan, who's referenced in, yeah. in, this, in this article. And, uh, you know, uh, it was after the Challenger uh, investigation of 86, and no one was, was, was listening to her uh, among the NASA, and they were spending millions and millions of dollars until the second Challenger fell down. And then everybody was calling her, asking about her book. And, and uh, it, it, there is an organizational culture like uh, 
like uh, if I deviate from normal and uh, nothing happens slowly the culture becomes a deviant mm -hmm. and and that's a problem because you know it's when we say a never event it's a never event right uh, we talk to people you know I, I don't want to go to sleep and find like something wrong was done with me where I have no control mm -hmm. you know and that's that's what we owe it to our patients we we function within a systematic little things happen so uh, going after I mean uh, going after one person and so this is this is really the whole thing like whenever you find an event you find multiple multiple uh, deviation from what has to be done and uh, it becomes it becomes a little bit hard and daunting to do the right thing every time but our job as leadership is to really bring back this meaning and then it becomes really hardwired and becomes easier and it becomes enjoyable mm -hmm. that's 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 really the point about this and that's why uh, you know the aviation uh, industry has moved to very very i mean it is safer right now to be in an airplane than being here yeah. you know it's just yeah. it's incredibly yeah, safe it really is so that's because they address this yeah. how does this relate to I, I love the articles i love the idea of this erosion of um a standard practice that you know over time little by little human nature is one of just cutting corners yeah. and trying to be efficient and sometimes those efficiencies are actually productive and that you learn something from them but other times they have consequences and i'm curious how this relates to you know the whole checklist manifesto that Atul Gawande really tried to propose for safety purposes because to me one of the reasons I think the airline industry has really <coughs> expanded on its safety is if I'm not mistaken they follow a very rigid checklist of what needs to be done before the plane takes off what needs to be done to hand off the controls to uh, the co-pilot uh, there seems to be that mindset yeah. of having this checklist and how can you go wrong with that, right? So I'm curious how this uh, relates. My, my impression of that is it, it is the marriage of two things. It's adaptation with, 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 with consistency. The uh -huh. checklist if you, if, uh, in the airline industry is not is not set in stone. They adapt their checklist over time, yeah. over time, mm -hmm. and and they adapt as, as I guess a response to kind of the social norms towards cutting corners. Yeah. And then they reassess whether actually maybe we didn't need that on the checklist. They yeah. talk about if you the, in the yeah. in the beginning the checklists were huge, huge. and people complained about them. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they then they started culling down the checklist. And now you know I think that uh, the uh, airline pilots pre-op checklist is like 35 things or now. I can't remember. I've been around in a while, and it used to be seventy-five know, things, and it was so onerous for them. And they did the, the continuous work of cutting it down. Dr. Ballard's a surgeon, so talk to us about checklists. Well, I'm also a disaster medicine um, groupie, I'll say. You know, I think the the key the key component that holds those processes together to me is the idea of constant audit and improvement, and and people accepting that we're never perfect and always trying to improve because the, there, I've, I've seen a couple of different reports about checklist fatigue yeah. and right. you know as much as I love the checklist ideology if we're not going back and looking at the process and auditing the process mm -hmm. saying how can we do better yeah we've done great to have a checklist how can we do better and where 
are we, just from a process analysis standpoint, falling short, even with our great checklist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that, that idea of audit is, you know, I, I can't emphasize it enough. And people are like, well, that's more FTs, that's more this. I'm like, well, I mean, if you don't, then all the energy you put into building the program crumbles because mm -hmm. it becomes non-effective. Yeah. yeah, and in in our organization, we started doing this six years ago mostly for our racial equity work, but now we've kind of tried to um, operationalize it in every single decision-making or programmatic and things. And we have this thing where we normalize, organize, operationalize, and normal, normalize is building that invisible culture that, you know, like where when somewhere in the article it says that the nurse who would cut the tip of her, the index finger because she wanted to feel the weight of the baby even as she did that. So, you know, how, so when you normalize like, uh, expectations about what's compliance, what's good practice, and doing that. So just normalizing it and talking about it a lot. Like So it's very explicitly stated from every level that this is how we do our work, this is what we do. And then organization is actually like intentionally doing workflows and team optimization and who should be there, who's missing, what, what can we do it, and then kind of really internalizing it into the DNA and it takes a lot of yes. effort to do that on the cultural yeah. level, on the process level and on the practice level all the time but it's just like we just have normalize it, normalize, mm -hmm. organize, operationalize. We just keep using that and that has, I mean just looking back at how we do things six years ago and how we do things now and it's because then there's that constant learning that's built into it because mm -hmm. all these new protocols come out of this and that and things that how do you keep up when you're in practice to be doing all of that so it's hard stuff yeah one, one other thing that I would just say I don't know that the article quite made this case but another issue around the challenger incident was just how much that seemed to be also a function of not questioning the authority of right. someone of saying, you know, we got to go. I mean, yeah. this has got to launch go today. Go, go, go. go. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the line, yeah. and, and the ability for one person, no matter what their level, to question, to say, I'm not sure, here's what I'm thinking, this is what I'm worried about, has everybody thought about this? And I think in an environment where hierarchy is so ingrained in, in the culture, so medicine, you ever seen those really cartoonish kind of uh, um, views of all the hierarchies in medicine? It's, it's daunting. And if you're that new person, if you're that lowest ranking person, if you are you know, even a volunteer and you need to challenge someone, there's a lot of cultural pressure that, that, that says that's not okay to do. The docs know it all, trust them. And 99.99% of the time that's true, but the one time you need to challenge might be the one time you you really are saving a life or preventing you know an error that needs to be taken. And that's on us. It is. I mean, that, I mean honestly, I've, I've had people come up to me, and, and this is usually around medical students and residents, mm -hmm. And I'd be really frustrated that someone hadn't come forward with a piece of information. And I had I had a nurse a, a, that I respect greatly, because she calls it like it is, look me in the eye and, they, and say, they're scared of you. Yeah. 
And I'm like, why are they scared of me? I bring them bagels on Saturdays. And they're like, because you're the attending. Yeah. No matter how nice you are, if you don't acknowledge that you are up right. high on the totem pole to them yeah. every minute and, and invite them to, yeah. be, to, to be more comfortable, to bring stuff forward, it has to be an active thing that you do. Mm -hmm. And I have always re I've, I've been grateful to her for the last five years for saying that because I was like, maybe I, I'm like a... Yeah. There. And she said, no, you're scary to them. Yeah. You've got to try harder. So it was on me, and she called me on it. And so I'm, I'm going to say this. It takes managing a lot of ego to be able to hear any kind of question, challenge, criticism, suggestion. You know, all of that requires ego management. And that is something that needs to be talked about. Mm. Yeah. I, was gonna say, I, mean, I appreciate the comment. It is on us, and, and I, I, I sort of adopt that and say it's a collective, and, and it gets to this piece of, of there are moments, like the one you just described, where it becomes clarifying to folks. Uh, and the, the unfortunate thing is there are often moments where it doesn't go that way either. And those also become clarifying in some ways, reinforcing in some ways of, of um, what people perceive is the true culture, whether you say and espouse these platitudes of teamwork, collegiality, and, you know, it's, uh, we're all in this together. I encourage people to speak up if when they speak up, uh, that uh, is either summarily ignored and or, you know, uh, um, met with derision, uh, um, uh, then, then that becomes a louder message than any sort of thing you can put on a piece of paper or you know a, a, a motto or any of that stuff and so we just always I mean it is it's ego it's it's, it's really just trying to figure out how you take a, I think a, a profession and a uh, set of professionals who are who are called upon just like the aviation industry to to be experts mm -hmm. to be really good at what you do and to be able to be counted on to do that in a context where teamwork matters and uh, and, and reinforcing that part of it that yeah I am I'm, I'm competent I am responsible I'm accountable but this all is an ecosystem and there are going to be things that I might not see that you might see and we have to do that together unless we do find situations like this where you know we all start pointing fingers or uh, perpetuating a culture that has always been here that we fall back on and say it just won't change because you name the reasons you know, when yeah. it's all on us. It is on us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciate the dialogue for everyone uh, and uh, so again push those articles out to your team and uh, great journal clubs uh, we, we, we have in our teams uh, meetings about some of these things so great stuff. With that, we will uh, close out item C and we'll move to item D, the med staff reports. We've allocated 30 minutes for this. Um, uh, open it up with Dr. Marzouk, if okay. Uh, the, uh, we approved the, uh, the credentials and privileges for, for that was uh, already uh, passed and uh, uh, with a modification of privileges for adding urology privileges for a foreign body removal. Uh, the, the main uh, uh, aspects were obviously SAFIRE implementation during the last uh, uh, month, which on the whole went very smoothly. 
obviously there's hiccups and everything, and uh, and uh, it's uh, on uh, full fledged and uh, proceeding nicely. That was, uh, uh, I mean, we're also doing the time of uh, right prior to our MEC, we had a revalidation survey, uh, which uh, we passed thoroughly uh, for uh, the issue of. Uh, how many findings were on that? There were zero. Yeah, this was, was a loaded question. Congratulations. Right. Congratulations to the staff and uh, everything that was involved uh, at, uh, uh, at the Metastat. Uh, and we approved the Quality Assurance Performance Improvement Plan uh, outlined, uh, as well as um, uh, the only issues were we're constantly working on uh, coverage, uh, emergency room coverage, uh, or emergency situations, particularly for GI coverage, uh, and uh, other issues of podiatry, uh, EMT, and urology coverage, uh, which uh, uh, Dr. Jamaladina said uh, we're working extensively to hopefully improve. Any questions? Thank you for your report, Dr. Marzouk. Any questions for Dr. Marzouk? No, I know that the GI coverage has been coming up like in the last six months or so, like I think at least since March. So um, is, um, is that, um, are people being sent out now to? Well, I think something? anything that requires something acutely has got to go uh, outside of, uh, of Alameda Hospital because uh, the GI coverage that we have, I, I don't think is any longer on contract uh, to provide 24-7 service. So it's at his discretion if, if uh, the GI uh, physician is called whether to come in and see the patient acutely or take charge. So if there is an acute Gastro, GI bleed, which needs gastroenterological intervention, I think that we would have to send that to Highland. So still within the system? Yes, within the system. Mm -hmm. But I mean, still obviously. from, from, mm -hmm. from that. Dr. J, comments? I mean, uh, you, you know, you and I are working really on the system. I'm being the I'm being like PSA help. chair, not the division chief. <laughs> right. Uh, so as with Dr. Baden also as a chair, we, we have uh, a physician who has accepted the position. Uh, uh, she's a uh, graduate of UCSF, I think, is it right? Um, California Pacific Medical Center. California Pacific Medical Center. Yeah. So she, hopefully this problem will will resolve and uh, we will establish a more of a system uh, like coverage and, and access for endoscopy and screening at, uh, at Alameda Hospital. I mean, we have a lot of other components that have to come into place. We have to look into the endoscopy lab and systemize uh, our, our endoscopy. Mm -hmm. So that's our plan. Yeah. So, so some of the coverage is yeah. in the offing in the in yeah. the very near future. Yeah. So uh, now I'll put on my division chief hat and I'll say this: this is the most progressive movement towards systematizing GI that I've seen in the past half decade or so. So I, uh, we've been talking about this for quite some time. So very very optimistic for this. There's going to be some rough 
periods alone as we're trying to bring people on as alike. So there, there might be some uh, zones where we don't have the coverage alone until we can get our staffing up to. But uh, the planning is, is uh, the groundwork for the planning is being laid. Yep. Um, yeah, sorry, for the other services also, uh, sorry to interrupt that, but just no, no, the other I, services we are recruiting for podiatry and for urology. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate that uh, we had a resignation in urology. Somebody moved because of family reasons, but we're working on this. And meanwhile, I'm trying to have at least uh, a contract with a community provider to give us some coverage for Alameda Hospital. So we're in negotiation right now. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Marzouk, you know what question I'm going to ask you. So uh, uh, at, at your last uh, presentation, you rank list your top concerns as number one, Sapphire, and number two, the transfer center. What's your current list as of today? Well, I would say uh, Sapphire has been implemented and running smoothly, so that's obviously lower uh, than it was before. Current would probably be the, the specialty coverage. Uh, specialty coverage would uh, be number your number one, and would be number one. Uh, transfer center. Let's just say that uh, uh, as it gets incorporated with uh, Sapphire, we'll see a, a, a hopeful improvement in that process. But that's going to take some time. Is that your nice way of saying transfer center is number two? Probably, and Sapphire okay. would be number three now. Okay. Got it. Thank you very much for your report. Um, Dr. Ingenier, uh welcome. Thank you. Uh, if you mind give us a, 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 a how, how are things going on at San Leandro Hospital? So uh, obviously we haven't had a meeting and our next meeting is planned at the beginning of next month. Um, however, the transition has been um, ongoing and interesting. I, I would, in our location, beg to disagree with Dr. Marzouk about the smooth transition of Sapphire, mainly because of, from our position in the operating room, the OR inefficiencies are massive. I mean, I'm looking here, first case, case on, because you know, these statistics are all now readily visible on the yeah. dashboard here. <laughs> first case on time starts, 0%, right? Um, and average turnover procedure time, 60 minutes, which, I mean, these are all totally unacceptable numbers, and it's it's been very difficult to stay efficient mm -hmm. for us. I don't know if Dr. Pollard's experienced the same thing at Highland. Um, and so th that's been a big problem. There's, there's been a lot of issues related to getting patients into the pre-op and processed, and, um, and that's added a lot of delays. You know, I imagine a lot of this will smooth out with time, um, and I'm hoping that will be the case. Um, but right now, it's still very inefficient to get through the process, I think, um, unfortunately. The, uh, and, you know, our group alone has completely readjusted how we schedule, you know, our schedules to the amount of time we have to leave to get things done um, in the operating room. Um, and, it, and I don't know that it's, it's not a specific staffing thing. I mean, people are trying hard to get this done properly, but there are a lot of nuances and, and issues with processes that were not well, mm -hmm. I think, worked out in, in many instances in the pre-op process. Um, and so, and, and that's the, the uh, concerns I've received from other physicians, just the inefficiencies. Um, you know, there have been 
But there are obviously practice style differences depending on the way, you know, us not having any residents where we are. And so there are certain things that we're working on. I don't think they're going to be huge problems, but related to telephone orders, you know, we don't have residents in the building 24-7. There were specific order, you know, instructions given to the nurses. Don't ever accept a telephone order. Well, when I'm on call, I'm covering five hospitals, you know, and I'm driving around. And, you know, if you need an urgent order, you're going to have to accept a telephone order. You know, I don't have my laptop in my car. I'm not going to pull over and mm -hmm. enter orders. Or we're operating. And, you know, I'm not going to scrub out and enter an order, right? I mean, that's, that's not realistic. So I think there are exceptions that have to be accepted. And, and uh, I don't think that's a big problem. It's just the staff was told things that really aren't totally true. I mean, the, the metric is, talking to Dr. English, to have, you know, certainly less than 15% of the orders enter on a patient. And I don't think there would be any expectation you'd have even that many. But the occasional one is required, you know, for efficiency and patient safety. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, you know, there are other things related that we're working on that are going to come up at the next meeting. So I don't need to belabor all these things, but there's certainly, from our perspective, there's still a lot of very inefficient processes um, related to the operating room that I see. The um, I think that will work out. I think the the huge boon is being able to access information anywhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's tremendous. Um, and so I think everybody is super excited about that. I've gotten a lot of complaints about equipment there. The servers are very slow. I don't know if this is a San Leandro thing, but in general, you know, the, there's a lot of irregularity, for example, on the computers. Some of them have login badges, some of them have microphones, it's not everyone, every place, and really they all need to have all that stuff um, for the, where a physician is working. Um, and all that stuff has to be working, and you know, there are thousands of these tickets that are put in. And so, you know, it's a, it's a lot to go through. Um, so th those have been, the, I think, the main issues that, that we've seen related to the transition. I think overall, it's it's going to be good to have a very uh, robust system where you can access all data all the time anywhere. Dr. Virginia, what's your impression of the of the vector of change since September 28th? Is it have you plateaued, or are you seeing? Do you think that people are showing continuous improvement? Like you know, the data point you give us zero percent on time. Uh, are, are, that hasn't changed since day one. So okay. it's still yeah, that, you, that's up right now. So. Yet the underlying processes, maybe room turnover time. I guess my question is, uh, are, are is it your impression that there's a, that the process is bearing out that kind of that that big bang where the dust is settling, or or do you feel like that you don't have the resources to investigate the process? You don't have the tools. I, I'm, I'm just trying to get a little bit of clarity on on where you sit. Or, or as a representative of your staff it, on this improvement? It's a little unclear now. I, I think, you know, everyone's enthusiastic to get this process to work. Yeah. And these people that are good people, very experienced, have been there for a long time. So they're, they're not, uh, you know, not, not trying to make this work efficiently. And I think with time it will. And I think things have to be streamlined a bit too. And it, it, it kind of goes back to the processes for the, the, the discussion we had on the, the, you have to be careful um, to make sure the processes are efficient because people want to make it as efficient as possible. Now with Epic, you can't really cut corners, but there are very many frustrating things you come across that make absolutely no sense when you're when you're doing stuff and you try to bring it up and like, you know, this is not, you know, 
and, and we've all been there, you know, death by a million clicks, yeah. right? You know, it's to do one thing. And, and uh, so, you know, hopefully there'll be, people will be receptive to the suggestions. I have seen a couple things changed. I've seen a lot of things that I've suggested um, not have anything different right now. We'll see. I think, that, you know, that the medical staff in general is, is much more astute and hypercritical of this bill because they've been exposed to other bills now. You know, with other bills, it may have been their first exposure to it. But with this one, I think people are seeing, well, this one so much, it doesn't make sense the way that is set up here because I've used it elsewhere and I've gotten that, you know, why would you do it this way? That's much more efficient. And maybe that evolved at another location that way. So we'll see. It depends on how uh, dynamic and uh, agile it is to, to make the appropriate change. And that, that we'll see the time, okay. hopefully. Trustees? Can I just uh, say something? Uh, I, uh, we have we meet every day uh, several times to address all issues, but uh, uh, the issue for the OR delays, they were never brought to my attention. I mean, I, I even sitting in this meeting, I get uh, text and emails, and we put in tickets, so I don't know uh, uh, what are the issues, but we'll certainly look into them and I, see what we can do. It, it's an item on the dashboard. You know, that, that I didn't put it there. You know, when I look okay. at my okay. dashboard, it says X number of cases. It's not just me, because I didn't do that okay. many cases. So I look, it must I be OR at San Leandro Hospital, because right. it's 40 or 50 cases, and mm -hmm. probably since July. So something. you said you spoke to David English about uh, no, that was about the order, the, the, order, okay. the verbal order study. Yeah, so he piped in on that. Not, I've not really spoken to anybody about this because I've been sort of waiting for it to get better, although yeah. it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. So, so just uh, we just to uh, give a little bit. I mean, we we'll talk maybe in the report, but uh, we get about uh, you know since we started yesterday, we get about 300 uh, issues every day. Uh, at the time we started, started about about 900, up to 1,000 maybe, whatever. So we have to look at them and prioritize them yeah. in terms of their priority and safety. But in general, we have three categories of issues. One, which is the number one and most common, is workflow, people using the tool. Number two are sometimes related to the software. And we have, you know, uh, we've had an army of analysts trying to adjust this software. And again, they have to be prioritizing the time. And number three are hardware. Like sometimes the hardware does not work or does not interface. So these are like the three categories of issues, but we will certainly look into the OR uh, and, and see what we can do uh, in terms of the, of the throughput. We have had delays in throughput, like whether it's in pharmacy, in labs, in all of this. So I will, I will see what we can do to help Dr. Ingenio. As it relates to the verbal orders, we totally understand this. And I think we have reached an agreement in general about what verbal orders are acceptable and when they are acceptable. But what's not acceptable is for a physician to be in the hospital and not doing surgery and refusing to write orders. And I understand this is not happening anymore. And we, we, we invest in staffing hospitalists to have 24-7 hospitalists in the hospital. And their leadership and themselves are willing to help in any uh, ordering process to ensure the safety of the order and, and the consistency of these orders. Uh, we were cited at Alameda Hospital for verbal orders. Actually, some of the survey uh, that happened uh, last week at Alameda Hospital, they wanted to see all verbal orders and they wanted to track all verbal orders. And it was easy to see them now on, on, uh, uh, on EPIC. 
every verbal order has to, to follow a certain category. It has to ensure the safety of the order and that the physician has, uh, has uh, 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 like, uh, closed that order uh, subsequently. So these, these are, like, as it, it relates to the issue of, uh, of, uh, of verbal orders. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I, well, first I want to uh, um, thank Dr. Engineer for the, uh, for the, um, the perspective. I, I, I was a bit taken aback because, I, as, as Ghassan was mentioning, uh, there's a daily call at uh, 4 o'clock every day that we go through every site, every sort of, or all major disciplines, and we talk about how the project is going. We have representatives from each of the areas who give updates, and, and invariably um, there are a number, a host of issues, uh, and, and, and so I've, we've heard that. But on balance, it's been issues notwithstanding, things are going really well, issues are being resolved, and so um, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised, actually, not, not about the fact that there are issues, but the, the, it, the tenor seems to be a lot uh, graver than I have appreciated at any point. Um, and so I, I think, if I heard you correctly, uh, part of it may have been that uh, maybe some of the issues haven't um, uh, surfaced so that then they could be fully uh, vetted but, uh, or probably I, you know the I, actually items on my dashboard I'm not quite sure where the data comes well, from. Actually, I was going to say I encourage you for the dashboard piece because it, it is a yeah. kind of a, a it's it's a it's a tool that works now but needs to be vetted. I look at we I have a dashboard as well right. and I have a daily practice now of looking at the dashboard and then trying to drill in and get numbers behind the dashboard. Uh, there's a logic that goes with the data that sometimes is workflow driven as well. So the numbers on the dashboard have to be examined until we get the workflows sure. to coincide. And that, and that could be a lot of it. I totally acknowledge Right. So I, I, would, I would certainly encourage at this point, if, if there are questions, and certainly if the, um, like what I do, for example, uh, I did one the other day. There was a patient at San Leandro who was on an observation status, and it said the patient was approaching 20 hours in observation status, and I wanted to know what's going on with this patient. Uh, uh, what I learned subsequently is a patient who was admitted for a, um, a pre-op for or a workup for a GI procedure. This is a situation where there's a question, I think, from the clinical side that I intend to look into, which is, is that medically indicated? You know, should a patient who uh, is otherwise stable coming in for an outpatient procedure be admitted the night before for a workup that could happen in the outpatient setting? So I think there are both a combination of workflow um, uh, challenges, the three categories that Ghassan mentioned, but there are also practices that uh, what we've discovered since we've gone live with so far is that some, there are some practices that are happening uh, throughout our facilities, not just San Leandro, where the question is, should it's in some ways somewhat alarming because it's like, should we be doing that or should we have been doing that? So in some cases, Sapphire is calling for some things that allows us to say, yikes, like we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, one great example, I was at uh, Alameda the second day of go live and uh, we brought a patient up to the floor who was admitted from the ED and uh, the orders, the admit orders hadn't been dropped yet. And they were trying to uh, accept the patient and they were struggling to do it because Epic wouldn't allow them to do it. And it was because the doctor, who was actually in-house, hadn't written the orders, but the question was asked, has the doctor written the orders? We went through the steps and the answer was yes. And then 15 minutes later, when we're still trying to figure out why this hadn't worked, they're like, oh, the doctor's there, he hasn't written the orders yet. Mm -hmm. And then the nurse goes, uh, oh wait, 
patients? So does this mean we can't accept a patient from the ED without orders? And the answer is no, you can't do anything to that patient without orders. And now that they've left the ED, they're not under the supervision of a doctor anymore unless you have orders to take uh, to, to actually take care of this patient. So uh, because the admit orders includes in order to actually admit the patient. So anyway, I think it's calling for a couple of things that will be questions about practices that will say, you know, should we be doing certain things? Uh, and I think to your point, if I if I understand you uh, correctly, Dr. Engineer, there will be some things that we do need to be sensitive about. How do they work in a context where um, in one setting we have residents and interns and things like that. In other settings, we in all the settings, we have hospitalists. And uh, the inpatient hospitalists are supposed to be the ones that work with the services when you're not in-house and or otherwise occupied. Uh, but there are certain things that the processes are driven by workflows, and the workflows are driven by policies that have now been approved that were the clinical standardization efforts that you all agreed to that are supposed to drive the practice. And that, that will probably need some, some iterative uh, um, um, examinations to make sure we're being safe and being uh, um, reliable in our in our care patterns, um, uh, irrespective of you know who's doing it. But I think that's going to be some of the rub as well. But I really appreciate you bringing it forward, and I'm looking at the team. Going, we got to look at this because we don't want to be disillusioned that things are going really well, and then hearing from any subset of the organization that you know it's doom and gloom. Even if you're optimistic, I appreciate you want to be there partnering with me to make sure that we're working through it together. So one other one other thing I, I thought was very interesting. A couple people have come to me, like my dashboard here, I'm looking at it just to discuss it. It says my top procedures performed in the last six months and and actually has number of cases, average length, average cost of the case is on this dashboard. I'm not sure where these metrics are. And I've had a couple of physicians, they must, other surgeons have this, they want to know the average reimbursement as well. And, and I think that that's a good thing for the system because now they're thinking, well, it costs this much to do this case, what does the system get? And if there's a disparity there, you know, maybe I should look at, I, I think that's what's going through people's minds. What should I do differently to try to reduce the cost to make it valuable or, you know, to maybe it, you know, the way I'm doing this, uh, that's my perception. And, and people have asked me, why isn't that metric there too? Oh, please understand, we plan to get there. <laughs> and what I say is, what I say yeah, is, thinking to get about cost is a great thing. That's right. I think it's yeah, absolutely totally great. Great. Yeah. Cost and measure. measure. Because they're, you know, especially in the operating room, people just use the thing that's... Yeah. So just uh, we're going to have more data now. These are very organic, and we're trying to improve them. If you have feedback, please give them. People asked me for that. Yeah, they yeah. Said, well, yeah, we should get that one so on there too. That's one source of data. We have the clinical database, which is almost built, which is going to give us as a system what is our cost per unit care, and what is our utilization per unit care. And that's going to be very important. I mean, if our utilization or cost per unit care is much more than other system, we have to understand why. And we have to, like all the steps we're talking about, the non-value added steps or non-value or the delay, we have to address all these issues. Because mm -hmm. there are benchmarks related to, to this. Absolutely. It'll get there. I mean, I don't think team, the teams working in the operating that I've seen haven't had any issues. I mean, it's still the same people. Okay. Right? But, and hopefully there can be more efficiencies. There. A new operating system is upon them. So yep. the, well, there's a little settle in time. Um, Mike, at your last uh, presentation, you know the question I'm going to ask. You, you, you named your top ranked concerns as number one, uh, Sapphire, number two, OR volume. 
Any change to that uh, prior position? So no, it's the same? No, same thing. Sapphire number one, yep. OR volume number Getting two. it efficient and OR volume, keeping the OR volume up. And, and this is potentially going to hurt it some if there's less efficiency. You know, people may choose yeah. other locations until it becomes efficient. If I may ask just a clarifying question, when you saw that 0% of the surgeries were starting on time, I'm assuming that this was because they were so bogged down by yeah. entering data into oh, yeah. Sapphire? Yeah. Okay. No, uh, actually, so again, I, I, I think you have to check that because I, 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 I want to caution that it, it could be that. It certainly okay. could be. But it may also just be workflow efforts where, the, like, like for example. Did they click the button? Yes. So, so, so I'll, one I'll of the clinics in, in inten outpatient, uh, uh, intensive outpatient, mm -hmm. I checked the other day because one of the providers looked like she had a 80% no-show rate. Mm -hmm. Five patients, four of them looked like they didn't show. Then I looked at another metric, and it said she saw nine patients. Mm -hmm. So I asked the question, what's going on there? I had someone look into it, because we're, we're finding this, and it's the way she's checking the patients in. Mm -hmm. So she's checking them in, but she's not pulling the appointment over. So she's seeing the patients, but it looks like they're no-show. So, so I'm going to say, the data's going to get more reliable over time. I, think I would that's not count on it at this point. I think that's part. But, but it is low. I mean, that's the, you know, the... Sure. But, but, but bring it forward. Yeah. It lets us explore the question. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I think we should. Okay. I, I, I want to make sure it's getting to the right form to make sure it's accurate, though, so we don't react to it okay. uh, before it's accurate. I mean, one of the things to appreciate about this is that no matter what system, no matter what um, mechanisms are being used to track a process, the fact that you're tracking a process brings with it <laughs> the potential that you're going to find out, oh, we always did it this way, That's but right. it doesn't really work. Like, why are we doing this first and then that and then this? Give them the Drucker quote. <laughs> well, what, 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 what? well, no, if it isn't being managed, it's not being measured. Well, it's measured. It's I mean, that's you're not part measuring, of it. You're not managing. Yeah, but the other part of it is you may find that some of the procedures that or the steps that you have embedded in Epic because it was the first round, mm -hmm. you're going to say, wait a minute, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it, and it's important for people to be, back to our original conversation a few moments ago, challenge that, right? To say, well, this isn't working, it's slowing us down, can we make it any better, faster, and cut, cut costs? Yeah. And, th and that is absolutely the plan. Yeah. So we had, the steps are um, go live, stabilization, then optimization. Right. Yeah. And so we had to prioritize some of the things saying, yeah. Great idea. We need to put that in optimization. We'll capture it. And that's why we want these things to be serviced. So just a, a, one quick question. You're getting 300 uh, tickets for and, requests. And, tickets. Calls and the process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm assuming we're going to hear a little bit about, like, categories of what the most common things are. Uh, you may, you know, Mark is going to do, oh, I mean, a year okay. before of my part of update okay. today at the board meeting uh, okay. for him to do the EHR Great. so you can ask him. Thanks. Absolutely. And the um, forum for getting this kind of real user input, like the folks who are actually doing the work, is um, how, how is that happening? So tickets are one way that they are doing, but there are meetings and things happening at sites. I had the forum with them. I had the forum with you, I think, Mike, after we went live in uh, in few days or in a week, I think, right? In a few days. In a few days, yeah. I was. So, so we'll have, yeah, I'll have a forum. On-site forum. Yeah, and I'll go to, I mean, the, the leadership meeting, uh, next leadership meeting. We are in constant communication with, uh, yeah. Thank you for the San Leander report, Dr. Ginny. Sure. Sorry. Dr. Ballard. 
What did you say? Sorry, took the long. No, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's no, dialogue. It's all good. I tan there. Wow, he's still smiling. Um, <laughs> he's still Doctor Dr. <laughs> <Yes, Bellard>. smiling. <laughs> so, I'll uh, I'll just be brief. Um, we already approved the credentialing. I will mention that uh, med staff services under the guidance of Satira did a heroic effort and we developed an emergency form for echo credentialing when we had a patient in the ICU who was dying. Mm -hmm. We were able to credential the provider to come and put the um, cannulas in, get the patient hooked up to ECMO, safely get them to Stanford. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, as I've learned more about EPIC and kind of what our potential is with care everywhere and ability to deliver care as a as not only a local system but as a community system, a, a member of a community of caregivers with different hospitals. I think that what we're going to see based on this experience is that we're going to have to build processes to address these kind of phenomenon on a regular basis. You know, a, a sharing agreement with some of these hospitals that offer ECMO as we get more and more patients, and this is the second one in the last two years that we've had to emergently get somewhere. But as a med staff, part of our to-do list is to start to build these processes so um, Satira and Lily aren't frantically paging people in the middle of the night trying to get credentials pushed through so that a, a surgeon could come over and place a cannula. And uh, we have a lot of really skilled surgeons here, but none of us have cannulized retinal in 25 years. So we really, since we had a person, a, a car drive away, we felt like this was the best route to go. Um, so that was, you know, probably the biggest thing about the credentialing's efforts past month was that we did that in the 11th hour. The patient safely got to Stanford, and I believe he's doing better, I believe. And um, that was at that item B3, that credentialing thing that we approved previously in the mm -hmm. consent. Correct. Um, just one one perspective on all that we've heard on Epic. I think you know I I imagined when we started this whole journey that it would uncover more work to do than save us work for a long, long time, and that's exactly what it's done. And I love the Epic and that the. IT folks have built this process where we have rollout, then we have stabilization, and we have um, then fine tuning that comes in. You know, the reality is, is we're going to be stabilizing for a while. You know, there's there's stuff that there's a lot of little pieces to this moving puzzle that that are going to have to be addressed before we ever get to where we optimize. But we're going to get there, and the data that we're even getting now is. It's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And, and there's so many people that are excited at what we can look at, how we can start being more of a participant in what we can offer and, and what we can do in terms of providing care and providing income and providing connections for the patients. It's just incredible. So um, everybody's super excited at Highland. And, um, but it, it is every time we look at one thing, it's like, well, I got ten more things to do now. But everybody's excited about it and still jazz that we have the opportunity at all because this has been a long, long time coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. Questions for Dr. Ballard? Um, Dr. Ballard, you know my question. I'll just to remind you at at, the, at your last presentation, your your three uh, ranked concerns were number one, diversity. 
number two, Sapphire Epic, and number three, trust between medical staff and executives. Can you update me on your list of concerns for uh, this this presentation? I think the first one will always be diversity until we have some really solid ongoing efforts that are palpable and tangible. So I'm going to make that number one. Um, number two, I can say that there's a lot of energy right now working on the relationship between the med staff and the C-suite. And we've got some really, I think, awesome ideas that we'll be sort of mm, revealing in the next month and a half probably in terms of ways to really make that a very tangible and loving relationship mm -hmm. ongoing. And, um, and last, Sapphire is going to be you know, probably on our plates for quite some time. Through my tenure as chief of staff, I'm sure. Got it. So number one, diversity. Number two, the relationship. And number three, Sapphire. Thank you. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Ballard? With that, we end the Chiefs of Staff report, and we will uh, close out item D. Thank you to all of you. We'll now move into item E, which is the SBU uh, Acute Quality Report. Uh, Mr. Fonseca, who's, which of the super team is going to be given us the report? It will be Teresa and Ronica. Excellent. So welcome to Ronica Shelton and Teresa Cooper, the respective VPs of Patient Care Services. Teresa at Highland, of course, Ronica here at Alameda. Uh, they gave their last presentation in June. Uh, welcome, ladies. Um, you should always presume the board has read their pack, your, uh, the packet. We strive for 75% dialogue, 25% presentation. So thank you for coming. It was a nice report that you wrote. Thank you. Well, I'd like to start with uh, saying that we've had a very eventful month, um, <laughs> all the hospitals, uh, especially with our Epic Go Live and our CMS revalidation last week at Alameda, and of course um, the surveyors here on site at, at San Leandro and Highland. Um, the revalidation last week uh, solidified with us our focus on our conditions of participa particip participation excuse me, regarding patient rights. They reviewed our plan of corrections. They um, looked at our evidence of compliance. And as Dr. Marzuk already shared with you, we had showed no deficiencies. So I'm just so proud of the Alameda Hospital team and, of course, the system and the support. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, highlighting True North metrics for the expected length of stay. Our report stated that the, um, at Highland, we're trending down. San Leandro and Alameda is below target. With the rollout of Sapphire, we'll be looking very closely at dashboards and utilizing tools that'll um, provide transparency and allow us to um, look at real-time data <coughs> to continue working on that metric. Chris, did you want to talk about You know, I think Tom Beer can add more to it, but um, basically um, 15 measures are on target. Um, and in order to receive all of them, we need 20 to be on target. Uh, we go with 30. So, ongoing work, um, a lot of effort into that. Um, do you want to add anything else to there? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Epic will help us with that tremendously. Um, so, yeah. 
Oh, medium time, um, actually, for our um, Highland-centric. And I'm, I apologize, I've seen this point. I was interrogated for four and a half hours today. Uh, <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> um, so that's why Ron has taken the lead. But, um, for, the, for the board, for the trustee, or oh, for anyone in the room, this is on page 315 of the packet, the Highland Acute SPU dashboard. <coughs> So um, we, for the median time decision to admit, which is entirely metric only, we remain below target. Uh, very proud of that. Um, and then the implementation of Sapphire. Um, and we've been in surge red, but for very short periods of time. So, um, you know, we'll move out of surge um, quicker, quicker um, and have a, you know, um, a uh, longer stay in yellow and mostly green. So we're proud of that. Um, and once the um, system transfer center opens up, it's fully complete. I think this will even get better. So we're headed in the right direction. Teresa, can you uh, apologize for interrupting? No, uh, the, the, uh, of the metrics, the, the median time from decision to admit to inpatient bed is the one that just jumps out at me, having practice here for you know 12 years. Can you can you contextualize that for for our board members? Uh, you know, we're at six hours and 58 yeah. minutes where we've been and that kind of thing? We've been up to 14, 15 hours. Um, mm -hmm. We, you know, we've, um, you know, we've cut it in half in a lot of ways, but we, we see that that's a lot of the outliers. Um, it's a lot less. In fact, sometimes we'll want to make a change to a patient before they go up, and they're going up before we can do that. So um, it's quick movement. Another thing that this doesn't represent, but shows that the PACU has had uh, zero borders in the past month. Mm -hmm. um, people leave before 24 hours, um, and that has been a, a um, a huge undertaking and um, very successful. So one more time, as you say that it's had zero borders. Yes. So borders for 24 hours. So okay. we have gotten up to 22 the last couple of days for one um, or two. But I mean, it is cleared by the morning. And yeah. I'll, I'll remind the trustees there was there there's in past months prior discussions of people being in the PACU for days, days. three, yeah. four days, right. and the like. Yeah. So that again, right. another uh, amazing movement within the hospital system. So. Um, yeah, for the Sorry, I opened it up to interrogation. I apologize. <laughs> for the um, with the 15 the, that you need to get to 20 measures for those five that you that you haven't um, achieved uh, mm -hmm. that aren't on target. Are you uh, are you optimistic that that would happen? Oh, I'm always optimistic. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> realistic. <laughs> and realistic, in, I think. I think yes. We have until the end of the fiscal year, but um, I'm afraid if I. I can give you a preview of next month's report. <laughs> likely show two numbers that add up to nine, which are three more than 15. What <laughs> 18. <laughs> okay. I'm happy to get that thank you. You're welcome. Can I continue? Um, so we can just move on to 30-day readmissions. No, you go for it. 30-day <laughs> um, readmit, San Leandro is uh, below target. Uh, Alameda and Highland are not meeting. And uh, Dr. Swift is going to lead a redesign of the readmission steering committee uh, for the system and is currently evaluating to understand our current data. So we have more to come on that and we're going to be really working on our 30-day readmits. Um, yeah, we have one thing that we are going to, um, with Dr. Swift, develop. So the patients have a care board when you open it up, and on the, we will delineate if they're part of the complex care team, and we'll meet with the nursing um, leaders and decide what that means for nursing when they visualize that. What can we do? What can we partner? Um, how can we be a part of that team to um, reduce the readmissions? 
would would uh, would uh, anyone on the team, this includes Tanvir, comment on what national uh, 30-day readmit rates are, and and a brief little primer on the financial implications of the 30-day readmit. Sorry, that was a big meatball that I just actually it wasn't a meatball. That was a little bit tougher. Um, Dr. Yes. Hussain, <coughs> welcome. Gather myself here. Okay. So, question number one: yes. what, what is the rough national average 30-day readmit? So the last time I looked this up, this is closer to 18%. Um, and actually, after the implementation of the hospital readmission reduction program by CMS about five to seven years ago, it, that national trend went from a little over 20% down to where it is now. In our population, um, when we look at a safety net population, that rate is even higher. So um, the red, the target that you see on the dashboard is actually based on our baseline. So the red and green needs to be interpreted in the context that already our performance is, is quite exemplary. Right. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, in our continuous strive for improvement, part of the work that the um, readmissions group is looking at diagnoses where patients may, um, where we have opportunities to improve care. Um, so I, I really applaud that team to continue looking at that. Did I answer both of your questions? Uh, you know, oh, and the financial, and the financial implications. There are. I don't know the exact uh, monetary. Yeah, um, just bro broad strokes. Yes, but uh, so basically um, there is some adjustment in payment, especially if it's a readmission for um, like the same diagnosis as before. We don't get fully reimbursed for that subsequent readmission. So definitely in terms of uh, not only is it good for the experience and the quality of the patient care, but it certainly has, also has financial implications. And uh, probably the uncounted cost is that knowing that we have a population or a community that needs care, that that bed is being filled by a potentially preventable is an uh, unaccounted for cost as well. Thank you. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and lastly, just uh, the fact that our age cap store, possible nine, uh, nine or 10, is proud to say that we are uh, met target for current and year to date. Um, at Alameda Hospital, one of the things I'm doing is I'm engaging our, our auxiliary to see what they can do and be uh, more active in our patient experience. For all three sites, um, Quality is going to start doing nurse auditing in November, and we're going to be auditing the nurse hourly rounding, our, our gift and no pass zone, and our patient care boards. And in that area, I just want to take a moment to recognize um, the eighth floor. Bridget's here, I think. Um, so she, their unit um, received an award, a patient service award last month. Um, she was above the 71th percentile for over five months straight. Um, and then, you know, our joint plan for um, all three sites to implement team steps was delayed a little bit for something called Sapphire. And, uh, and then some visits from some friends. So um, we want to ramp that up and implement that. You know, yeah, so it covers mostly um, everything, if there's questions. Trustees, anyone in the room, chiefs of staff, questions for this power team? <laughs> Thank you for all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> it the, is. The CMS, mm. the Sapphire, the, all of that. Mm. You all have been doing exemplary work. So it really you. is. Um, uh, Dalvik, oh, sorry. you sent us uh, uh, a note when we when there were zero findings then, really. So we knew right even last week well, just how much we are, the teams have been working. So please convey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Our gratitude. Exactly. 
Um, as you guys know, you've presented here, I'm going to ask us the, the question that I always ask of anyone who presents. Um, at your last SBU presentation in June, uh, Ronica, your top concerns were number one, budget, number two, Sapphire, number three, patient experience. Any amendment to that? Um, my number one is going to be sustaining my plan of corrections. Or Sustain plan of corrections. Correction. Yes. Got it. Uh, number two would be negotiations. Mm. And number three, patient experience. Number one, sustained plan of corrections. Number two, negotiations. And number three? Patient experience patient slash experience. epic. Got it. Um, Teresa, your uh, rank list last time was staff morale, number one. Number two, Sapphire. And number three, we're sticking on the word sustaining, sustaining the surge process. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you update us? Um, uh, yeah, can I deviate a little and talk about um, the article? You, of course. Wrote? Because it's, it, it sort of encompasses that. So um, I want to utilize EPIC as a tool to um, uh, recognize deviations, and I think we've already started that. So the, the emergency room we met recently, and we are going to, we have sort of a SWAT team, um, because we're finding deviations in a lot of items, and we want to pull back. EPIC will allow us to, we recognize them, so now we need to make sure we don't fall. Some yeah. areas are falling. So the staff are speaking up, that we're creating um, work groups for this, and I think we need to sustain it on all the areas I want to do in the OR, um, and the floors, and everywhere else. So um, Sapphire's not on my top 10, because I, I want, even though it's buggy right. and clunky, I want to utilize it to, to help us um, change the culture. And we're having the frontline staff make decisions and bring issues up, and it's empowering them, and it feels good. So, okay. that one off. But your your article was apropos um, because these deviations and rules that they're recognizing, we have the one opportunity to change that and to have the tool to change it. So, so I'll just encompass that in the deviations as yeah. as your number one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, you we know, won't I, allow it to happen. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know uh, the, the the amazing thing about Epic is that I think it uncovers deviations we were previously unaware of. We yeah. just weren't even unaware that yeah. these were deviations. Yeah, and you know, yeah, as one of the things says, it says they incur in healthcare. They're not um, the deviations or rule violations are rarely motivated by malice or greed. We don't do that, um, but often result from personal feelings, intense performance pressures, and we have that. And so if we can channel this, this data we get and, and change that um, with the help of the frontline staff, um, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Teresa, last time staff morale was your number one. Can you make comment on your it's, impression of staff morale? It's an ebb and flow. Okay. Um, I think we, um, if we don't, um, if we dive in and we don't ignore it, which we're doing, um, I think that's really important. And then celebrating. So we had CMS go through the OR yesterday. Huh. And we had some moments of staff stopping them because it was Tuesday, sorry, my days are wrong, because they were concerned about patient safety. And I celebrated that in the moment. CMS liked it. Um, there was a couple of moments where we thought it was a little intense, but they commented that the staff were speaking up and saying this, you know, not right now. Yeah. This is, we're concerned about the patient. Yeah. So I think, you know, and Dr. Ballard and I have talked about this, um, being engaged, wanting to make sure that we listen, and that's the first start. Yeah. And we're listening. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we are. Dr. Ballard, any comments? I just want to thank you for being tireless and brave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This place will be a lot better because of you. Yeah. You're here for both, both of you, all three of you. Yes. Um, um, so with that, I'll open up for any other comments or questions. Thank you for that wonderful report. Keep up the... You're welcome.
Herculean work. Thank you. Um, with that, we will close out item E. We will now move to item F. This is uh, a report we've been uh, uh, eagerly anticipating to hear for quite some time. Um, this is uh, the Wellness Task Force report. And we have um, uh, Dr. Lisa Rosequist and Jan Robertson, who are the team to uh, who lead and uh, guide this, this important uh, entity within our organization, the Wellness Task Force. So, welcome, guys. Um, slight you. guidance, you should presume that uh, the, the, the board has read your packet. Uh, you've, inclu you've included some nice slides as well, and uh, we strive for more dialogue than, than presentation. Uh, so, with that. So, welcome. If you, if you both don't mind introducing yourselves uh, to us with a yeah. mic. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. I'm Dr. Lisa Rosequist. My title is Director of Physician and Resident Wellness. This is a relatively new position. I started this role in August 2018. Um, I provide uh, psychological support and coaching to our medical staff and our residents. And I'm Jan Robertson. I am the Patient Relations Manager for the system, and I am a proud member of the patient safety team under the direction of Dr. Hussein and Darshan. I've been with the organization since 2005, and I have a passion for this organization, and working with Lisa <laughs> has been such a joy. Today we wanted to share with you... Oops, sorry. Today we wanted to share with you um, a topic that Lisa and I feel very uh, fortunate, well, we feel very passionate about presenting this to you because it's a collaboration between the patient safety and wellness department. And what we envision is a care for the caregiver program. And what care for the caregiver is, is it's, um, it's a formalized process of providing emotional first aid to staff, to prov uh, physicians, um, after a, an unanticipated event or a harm event. And um, the toll of these events can take various forms, and Lisa can talk further about that. And many of you have probably heard of the work of Dr. Albert Rue, the patient, the, patient Rue, the patient safety expert, who coined the term the second victim back, back in 2000. Mm -hmm. So much of what we're going to talk to you about is the, the ramifications of the second victim and how can we rem remedy that here at Alameda Health System. Um, the Care for the Caregiver program is a domain of the Beta Heart program, um, which is actually, it's, it's an incentive in many ways because Beta provides a toolkit to us, a structured toolkit to help us roll this program out. And um, also, there's a financial incentive in that if we are to successfully roll out a Care for the Caregiver program here at Alameda Health System, we would receive a 2% reimbursement on our insurance premium. So, yes, there is a significant impact um, on providers of the trauma of being a healthcare worker, basically. Um, this stat here, one in seven staff is emotionally affected by a patient safety event and further, 50% of healthcare providers will experience the second victim phenomenon at least once in their career. Um, and this has significant personal but also professional implications um, and an impact on the healthcare system. Uh, traumatized providers um, have been linked to uh, decreased patient adherence, um, worse patient outcomes, lower HCAP scores, um, and of course the financial impact of 
if a provider actually burns out, leaves healthcare, and then needs to be replaced. And personally, um, physicians and uh, nursing staff as well um, have a higher rate of anxiety, depression, substance abuse, divorce, decreased work-life balance, burnout, and this last stat is the most concerning. 400 physicians commit suicide annually, which is the equivalent of one medical school lost each year. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and the second victim phenomenon does not just it's not just uh, physicians, it, it affects all healthcare providers. And we want to just shed a little bit of light on uh, Nurse Kim Hyatt, who was a nurse in Seattle Children's Hospital back in 2011. And um, she was a critical care nurse who um, was, she was actually 50 years old, so she had been a practicing nurse uh, with ex- an exceptional record for, I think, 27 years. And one day she was caring for an eight-month-old infant, a critically ill infant, who, and she miscalculated a dose of calcium chloride. She gave 10 times the dose. Five days later, that infant died, and seven months later, Kim Hyatt, she committed suicide. The, the aftermath of that for Kim, um, along with the grief, she was immediately terminated from the organization. She was also put on a probation period with the State Nursing Commission and for four years. Every time she was going to give a medication to a patient, she had to be supervised. This toll, and she just couldn't maintain, and so seven months later, she passed away. And that story is so important because it really highlights why why this matters, why we're doing this. And Beta Heart feels so strongly that they've created this program. They've identified that providers need these things. They need formal support with a program like this. They need informal emotional support from their colleagues um, at the department level. Um, they recommend prompt debriefing immediately that this is part of the culture that not only um, do we talk about what happened with the patient, we talk about what happened with the provider in the moment and right afterwards. Um, Opportunity to take time off out from the floor, take a walk, get some support, have a rest, come back as soon as you're ready, Um, even take some, you know, a week off if needed. Um, In the moment, helping to talk with the patient and the family um, and Providers also seem to struggle with knowing about the review processes and the term investigation, very scary. Um, And so really uh, having that communicated very clearly right away is something they recommend. And of course, last but not least, remain a trusted member of the team. Trauma team to the ER, level two trauma, DCA, eight minutes. Trauma team to the ER, level two trauma, DCA, eight minutes. So the program that Lisa and I, or Dr. Rosequest and I envision, and also is, is the program that Beta would also recommend, is a three-tier program. The first tier is that unit or department level support. When we, when we roll out a program like this, we are increasing the awareness of the second victim phenomenon. So folks are looking out for each other. Um, and so this is where you're gonna, staff will reach out to each other when they notice perhaps somebody is suffering. Um, and really just to let that person know, hey, I'm here for you, um, reaffirm the confidence in that, in that teammate and let them know that you're still very valued. Um, the second tier is 
um, basically the bulk of the program, and it's where we're going to have, we would like to have a pool of trained, trained peer supporters. Beta actually does the training of the peer supporters. It's, a, it's about a six-hour training that involves simulation and is really focused on communication skills. Um, and also part of Tier 2 is a, are, uh, would be coming from the patient safety department in which um, our department would be proactively reaching out to providers and, and others who are involved in a harm event. Um, so proactively reaching out, letting them know what resources are available, and also to um, let them know what to expect in the coming weeks if they are given, sent an email like, hey, we want to invite you to an RCA, to take away some of that fear that this is just part of our process. It's built into our culture. And the top tier is tier three, and that's where Dr. Rosequist yeah, and I'm available, um, you know, to provide psychological support and crisis support. We also, of course, have EAP and referrals to the community, and certainly included in Tier 3 is um, emergency referral if necessary. So our short-term goal in implementing this program is to do a small pilot in the Highland ED. So um, we've outlined a few of the things we need to do. We need to be clear about protecting, protecting provider time for that six-hour training when Beta Heart comes out. Um, the beauty of that training is that once they train us, we are trainers, so we can continue it on, and that's our plan as we move into system-wide peer support. Um, once we have trained all of our peer supporters and we've started the program, Beta also requires that there is an identified wellness space. Um, so we've looked at some areas uh, even within the Highland ED and of course we would like it for all of Highland. So we've identified um, one possible place which is the ninth floor of the ACT. It's a waiting room that's not frequently used um, and we're hoping that eventually a space like that would exist where providers and staff can go check in um, and know that it's a place to recharge. Excuse me. Also, our short-term goal is to adjust the patient safety workflow of proactively reaching out, um, and we've been doing that um, little as we go already. So long-term, this is quite a quite a hefty lift for the entire system. But I believe starting small in our pilot, I think we're going to have a lot of lessons learned, and we're able to we'll be able to take those and implement it elsewhere. From what I see, um, people are really hungry for this. I think it's something that people are doing on an informal level, and this is a way for them to do it formally and be recognized for it. So with that, organizational commitment really matters. And this is not just from our leadership, but even you know each department, each individual. We're talking about changing the culture of AHS. Mm -hmm. um, and to do that, of course, we do need to look at how our funding structure will be set up um, we envision actually a more of a formalized um, structure between patient safety and wellness, which is just me. <laughs> I'm the only provider wellness. And so Jan and I working together on this, um, we think it's like you know, the perfect marriage. Um, and we're hoping that we can continue that and grow it. And ultimately our goal would be to create a resiliency amongst staff um, that kind of permeates our culture and, and feeds into our whole culture of safety and what we're trying to create here. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, including, you know, of course, improved staff outcomes um, and to have the best patient outcomes possible. That's what we do. That's our goal. Um, and, of course, with provider retention and well-being be, um, being at the forefront of our minds as we do that. And the dedicated wellness spaces. We talked about a place we identified here at Highland, but if this is spread system-wide, this need, a wellness space needs to be a part of every single facility. Here's our ultimate vision for, rather than using the term care for the caregiver, Jan came up with this excellent acronym, <laughs> AHS Peers, which is Peers Engaging with Empathy to Build Resilience and Support. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll open up the floor for questions from trustees, chiefs of staff, executive staff. I have a question for you. Um, thank you so much for this. It's much needed. And... Um, what can we do, or is it part of the plan, to um, not necessarily be reactive, but proactive around um, the wellness needs of our staff? I'm thinking a lot about best practices around um, mindfulness. Um, I've heard so much about you know simple steps of gratitude. I know another system now has a small little postcard that any person can give to another person to just recognize their exceptional effort in a moment. Um, all of those very small, but they add up to be a, a really creative and, and effective way to build support in the day-to-day versus waiting for the crises moment to happen. And I know you're not waiting, but I'm just saying, could you speak to that other side of it? Yeah. Yeah, actually, um, in the materials for Care for the Caregiver, they recommend like a little postcard or note card or really a badge buddy that you have it available at all times. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, we want to prevent. Um, we want to build the resilience ahead of time. Um, and I think my hope is that with the peer support program being something that is sanctioned by the organization and supported, that we have multiple peer supporters that are just checking in with people you know, as needed ahead of time, that it's the wellness of our colleagues is something that um, we're doing automatically. Mm -hmm. So I would agree, and that's Thanks. our plan. Thanks for that pres great presentation, both of you. I've worked with both of yeah. these uh, lovely ladies, and they, they both do amazing work. So um, one comment uh, that, that came in the report, you may comment to a 10 uh, sorry, a 2% incentive insurance premium. What what do you is there a projection on what that equates to in in real dollars? Um, I don't have the actual number. Um, Darshan, do you have? Number? I think. Um, okay, my mic. So the question is, what might this in incentive premium amount to? It, it's it's a substantial amount, and I think it's. Um, close to 100,000, and, and I don't know, um, maybe Luis can correct me if I'm wrong, but I did verify those, um, I verified those numbers with the, our beta folks, so it is a substantial incentive. There is no downside to this kind of program. So remember the totality of our contract with beta on a yearly basis, uh, Alex? So I don't, but what I can do, I can confirm with beta, just to make sure, okay. but, you know, it is 2%, but we don't know exactly what that equates yeah, in exactly. terms of the amount. But yeah, we'll divide it. Dr. Ballard. So uh, two things, along the lines of the monetary benefits, I think you're just scraping the 
the tip of the iceberg when you start looking at how much we're saving with the 2%. Right. I mean, the amount of, of not measurable savings that we have, both from you know, better quality care, patient satisfaction scores, physicians that don't leave the, the institution, that by itself, if you were to add those numbers to the 2%, this program would pay for itself five times over. Mm -hmm. And one lost physician, I think it's a million dollars? By itself. By itself in recruiting. So that, I mean, I, I, if, if we were to really crunch the numbers, we would be making hands down fourfold of what it would cost us to do the program. So have those number projections been crunched? No, I, I don't. I mean, and this is the challenge of even Beta speaks to it, and for any type of wellness program is that we're talking about prevention, um, and it's hard to equivocate that besides the, it used to be $250,000 to replace a PCP. That's an old stat from early 2000, so I wouldn't be surprised if it is $1 million. We're looking at it in terms of retention and metrics of those kinds. Yeah. So. Yeah, but one thing I will add is that another, the f other financial piece of this is that these are already our, our paid colleagues who are already at work doing their job. We're not hiring a huge staff of people to come in and do this. We're finding our strengths and using them. So, one other piece. And, you know, I think in addition to the amazing work that Lisa's already done, Dr. Rosequist, I so appreciate you being here. The number of times that I've had a fetal demise in the ED with a trauma or a, you know, having to talk, having to go in with my residents and talk to a parent of a 14-year-old that's been shot and killed, and I can't just go in anymore. And to have, you know, to know that, that if we could have three or four of her that could come into the ER that night or meet us within a 24-hour period of time to talk to us about the way we're able to move on and take care of other patients or go home and be civil to our own families after those experiences and be able to actually talk. You know, that's that's the thing that, you know, I keep wanting. I, and I send her emails on a routine basis, hey, can we try to get together? And, you know, and it's just one person. And we need five of her to do the work that actually is needed to be done here to shift that culture. Absolutely. Can you comment on the funding source sources for your current position and the reporting structure? For my position? Uh, for, for we'll, we'll call it the wellness program. Sure. The provider wellness program is, is me. Yeah. <laughs> 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 sure. So um, this position uh, really came together when ACGME required that there's a wellness person providing this type of work to residents. So some of my funding for this, for my position, which is 20 hours a week, um, comes from GME, some comes from med staff. Um, so it's sort of cobbled together in that way. Um, so it's not a, one department that exists within another. And I think long-term vision is maybe, you know, it makes sense that it would be a more formalized role perhaps with inpatient safety. Mm -hmm. So, so the reporting structure, this reports to the GM? I, I report to AH, it through AHP. Through AHP. Yeah. So. I have a question about that. Um, oh, sorry. No, 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 no. no, no, no. Um, it just seems like there are um, 
potential other sources of funding that don't have to touch the hospital, but the other piece would be making use of a core set of volunteer therapists, community members who have trauma um, education, because I think what we're talking about, um, I just want to name it, that if you've had to tell a parent that their 14-year-old child just died, uh, or that their child is incapacitated, is going to be a quadriplegic, whatever the message is, that that is a, a, a moment of trauma. And the physician, the nurses, anybody involved in that situation is going to go through what we typically understand to be a traumatic event. So there are people who are working in our communities, and it just seems like that's a natural resource for us, and we should try and tap into that so that you're not by yourself, because that just seems really tough. Yeah, absolutely, and it's we're, we're learning more and more in the last year that I've been doing this about the type of support that is needed. Right. Um, one big example is that I, I'm available, um, you know, whenever. Like, if I'm available to answer the phone, I answer it. So, and I schedule appointments with my patients by phone in the evenings, sometimes on the weekends, because that's the only time that they have. It's not feasible for them to leave the hospital at 2 p.m. for a therapy appointment, unfortunately. But, so, um, I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you. Dr. Ballard. Uh, and I think part of it is having someone with the bandwidth to do the tapping. Because we've, we've been having that exact conversation in the trauma division for literally a decade. Wow, wouldn't it be great if we just had, like, someone who could do emergent interventions with a group of people? Wouldn't it be great if, and, you know, and then this is here, she's available to do it, but she's not physically here. She's often talking to other people who are already lined up to be, you know, counseled by her. So, you know, it's, I think that's part of it is to have someone who has the ban bandwidth to actually build that. And audit it, maintain it, make sure that the providers offering their services are doing a decent job. Right. But I think you know a bigger part of this, and this steps one, one evolution and maturation level beyond a beginning wellness program is that you know we had a speaker at our um, med staff event year before last who was a wellness provider from Stanford, and. He very eloquently stated that you can't just do one part of wellness. And he very eloquently talked about one of his colleagues who emailed him and said, uh, you can give me all the yoga passes you want, but if my schedule is that I'm seeing 120 patients a week, that yoga is not going to do any good. So I think from our standpoint, this institution is, is right at the beginning of an opportunity to analyze what our docs and what our nurses and what our residents are going through on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, if you've got a doc that, and I will tell you, sometimes I work 58 hours out of 72 from taking care of patients mm -hmm. in this institution, 2018. Mm -hmm. I will work 58 hours within 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nobody's, I, and I, as long as there was Song Chang, I said, this doesn't seem quite safe. Right, right. Well, my, my, my other concern is Lisa can't do this by herself, no. right? So I'm glad you're looking at peer support exactly. and so on. It's yeah. just to make this sustainable, um, I, I really feel, again, we need to find ways 
about being proactive on the culture and, and making sure people understand um, every day is an opportunity to support someone. Uh, you may not know what they're going through, but if they have that ability to call out and say, I'm really struggling today for whatever reason, that's important so that there isn't further um, uh, damage and, and further trauma, right? So waiting for the event is is problematic, and I know you're sure. not going to do that, but I'm also worried about you. <laughs> it's not easy to hear that. It's not easy to be in the middle of that. And trust. I just wanted to add one more thing. Um, as I was doing the as I was doing the culture of safety debriefings with the physician groups. A lot of the physicians that were working long, grueling hours, like Dr. Ballard has indicated, they have no safe place to go for a reprieve. And sometimes, you know, being a trauma center, being, uh, you know, um, a lot of challenges that they're facing every day, having a safe environment or a place where you can go and you can just unload or, or take a few moments would be a, a huge gift for our providers. Um, so I, I saw that there was that huge gap when we did do the debriefings with our physicians. Trust, thank you, yeah, Trustee Banerjee. And even in the short time since this has been in place, you can see like meant for the interns and used so extensively and you could do that. So like um, Darshan, you said, there's no downside to this, there's just a greater and um, greater need for it and even as you're thinking long term about kind of uh, the toolkit and how it is is it are, are elements of that uh, able to be included in you know the just culture work that's happening in the mm -hmm. in the safety risk when you're doing your RCAs and things like not from the physician angle like as you close uh, is that is that possible to be kind of um, embedding that into some of some of your work. Jan is extremely humble, but I'd like for her to speak because that's a natural part of what she does. Uh, so, I, it, <laughs> it, it's just, okay, so the, the Beta Heart program encompasses many aspects of what you're talking about. It's the, the heart, I'm going to speak from the heart. The heart program starts, <laughs> it stands for healing, empathy, accountability, accountability resolution and trust and that is basically a framework for a just culture it's it's creating um, trust amongst amongst the care team amongst patients it's about open and honest communication it's about empathic communication and treating each other the way that we should be treated um, so if we, I see that Lisa's struggling I'm going to reach out to her on a human level and just you know let and be there for her same thing as when our patients we have to sit down with a family who has just lost an infant and to explain to them, as I just did last week with a, with a provider, around uh, explaining, you know, we're so, explaining why this baby didn't make it, why, why, why there was a fetal demise. Those things are so traumatic. And this program would, it would, it can weave itself into so many different elements of our culture that's needed. Um, because this, this, there's just, we need a support, but as far as a just culture, the, that it's all part of this beta heart program. So necessary. If you guys could have a first ask to get this started, what would it be? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I think we've outlined the you know the need for more of us 
and more of each of our times. Um, you know, Jan has done this. This is not her main job. She does this with me on top of her job. Mm -hmm. So I would say first things first would be um, more time for both of us to do it. Um, and then, yeah. And I and one thing um, I over the almost 15 years that I've been here, I have been impacted by my connections with the patients, but also with the connections with the providers, the providers who will call just because they need to talk to someone. And so um, sometimes I just feel like I'm a listener, but sometimes that's all someone needs is that they're not alone. They just need that reassurance. And so um, I don't know how much more I can say, but it's, it, it's been a need for many, many years. We all thank you for that report, and we hope to set a follow-up uh, with you guys. And we'll be hearing through Dr. Ballard and to Dr. Jamaluddin about the progress of this. Thank you, thank you very so much. With that, we close item F. Thank you for that report. Um, for 15 minutes, we'll go into item G, which is the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs Report. Uh, Darshan and uh, uh, Tanvir, if you don't mind walking us through this report. Uh, for our trustees, it's in your packet. It begins on page 334. It's our standard report, uh, and I'll, I'll leave it to them for commentary. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, so, uh, as you can see, the volume has been consistent with our um, safety alerts, so we're really happy that we are still um, encouraging a culture of safety. Uh, the significance of E or greater, we're going to continue to try to make efforts to bring that percentage uh, lower. I mean, two years ago, it was at 6% of the overall safety alerts, but um, we're a little bit higher than last year, but this year is still in process, so hopefully we'll be able to work towards better outcomes. Um, as far as the uh, accountability at the manager level, um, that turnaround time of investigating and closing has really substantially improved, which is is our goal because we want to make sure that these issues are addressed in a timely manner to reduce the harm to the patient. Um, I think we've seen an overall reduction in uh, safety alert submissions because I, I, I honestly, I'm, I, I'm hoping there's less events going on out there and people just are not you know, reporting, but I think people have been really consumed with the epic go live, so it might be hard to really assess what the downward trends uh, mean at this point, but I'm just speculating. Um, again, most of them are medication related, and, and most medications are uh, do reach the patient, but they don't result uh, in any harm. So the majority of those events are managed very closely with quality and our medication management, our pharmacy team, and nursing. So uh, most of those issues are uh, resolved and don't result in any bad outcome. 
we then have just an index of the total events. Um, I'm going to then scroll down. Can I ask a yes. About that? Yes. So all of the others show like a downward trend. Yes. And I didn't know what the device supply, like which kind of doubled a little bit almost, like you know, since. The, energy. Can you say that again oh. for all this? So um, the uh, risk events by class, as you see, that like the that list of. Um, on most page of, 336 of the um, document. Page 336, and as you see over the months, July, August, September, yes. you see a downward trend in in some of these mm -hmm. risk events too. The, I didn't know what a device supply thing meant, and that was the only one that um, showed a spike. Well, we're, we're working very closely with our OR, our perioperative services leaders, and um, many times I think Dr. Ballard can also attest to this. They do have a lot of equipment failures and things where they don't have access to. So we've actually encouraged the providers to submit safety alerts because this is the only way that we can track and trend when there's huge gaps in necessary equipment that they need. And so um, I don't know if Dr. Ballard can say anything more about this, but a lot of them are submitted by providers when they don't have the necessary, um, you know, OR equipment or tools to do the job. So I think it, I think it's a first step to improving the, the process. You know, we're still in reactive mode, and it's there's there's a lot of layers as to why we're in the reactive mode, and. I will say that, that over the last particularly three months, there have been some major moves to kind of get past that need to be in reactive mode. I mean, at some point, it would be nice to build a system where we actually use technology to determine why, you know, we don't have the right equipment at the right time and that sort of thing. But, um, but it, it's a major undertaking and there's all different levels, including HR issues and unions, I mean, you know. So, but it, it is getting better in the fact that people are feeling empowered to report these things now, where even a year ago they would be like, why bother? It never is going to get fixed. Now they're reporting it because they're like, wow, we're starting to see things get better. Maybe I can help by doing this. So the reports are being filed. And so in my opinion, it's a step in the right direction. And we will eventually turn that corner and go from reactive to proactive and start building an amazing system. It's just we're not there yet. Thank and you. I'm just happy people reporting. It's like, mm -hmm. um, if we um, move to, oh, well, the good news is we had no eye events. Mm -hmm. We had zero um, uh, death or harm in September. So that was um, after, so August and September, we had no I category events. And I, I want to applaud the quality team. Mm -hmm. This was one of my requests to, to build the trend out by uh, event type. Okay. Uh, so thank you very much. This gives, a lot, it gives the board a lot of uh, clarity on, on trends and, and severity, Great. scope and scale. Um, then we're going to move to our patient relations events who, and now you've met Jan Roberts and she leads that program. Um, and uh, over the course of the last couple of years, our grievances from our Alameda Alliance have gone um, through the roof, basically. There's been a lot, and I think the Alliance actually encourages patients, families to 
uh, when they're, they're dissatisfied to submit a grievance or complaint. So the volume has gone um, exponentially uh, high. However, um, we're working very close with the agency to try to streamline some of the processes. And they also want to be very involved and, and help us with some of those cases. Um, and, and so that, that we can work, we can have a partnership to try to address what are the commonalities um, in some of these uh, some of these types of events. Um, this year, after two years of a lot of hard work, we did see a 25% reduction in these first three months in the overall patient grievances. So I'm hoping that we're taking a turn in the right direction where we're addressing problems and, and, and grievances will go down eventually. Um, so that's where I want to really reflect a little bit of light on that area. Um, Again, patient relations, the grievances are going down. And the biggest bucket is quality of care. It's, it's typically um, just being dissatisfied with the quality of care or the communication um, from the provider um, often leaves a lot of uh, dissatisfaction. Do you think the ability for patients to connect with providers via Epic will help that? I hope so. I hope so because in the Kaiser world, a secure messaging is a very popular and highly utilized communication tool between the provider and the patient. And I think that um, in our system currently, we don't have a mechanism to get uh, an immediate response. And I'm hoping that this will help alleviate some of that anxiety that a patient has when they can't get a hold of their provider. So uh, yeah, I think we should definitely encourage our patients. I know, we've got to get going. Um, and uh, there was uh, an event um, that I just wanted to share in the Highland um, ED. It was an unintention, unintended retained foreign object. Um, it was an uh, autistic patient that had come in for trauma. They had a laceration on their tongue and it was, um, it was not general sedation, it was a procedural sedation, and uh, the, the patient became very anxious and, and um, had some uncontrollable movements and um, actually ingested the, the, the suture. Uh, it was noted immediately. Uh, they tried to mitigate the issue. We're still investigating it, and we've done a lot of uh, uh, investigation on this, uh, on this uh, uh, and I don't know if we've been able to retain the object. I, I need to loop back and make sure we've removed the object. The, the object is no longer there. Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Did you take care of that? <laughs> okay. So that was the only event mm -hmm. that we were. Um, and then the regulatory report I'm going to um, share on behalf of Nilda Perez, who's been consumed with our CMS survey. Uh, in September, we um, did receive two complaint notices from DPH. Um, year to date, we've had 80 complaints, 12 which has, have resulted in deficiency. Um, 46 of them, we've had no deficiencies, and 22 cases are still open um, to be resolved. So again, a lot of work that's being done, but a majority of those are demonstrating no deficiencies, which is what we want to always aim for. Um, and then just a disruption that we had, and that was it didn't uh, outcome. The outcome was resolved. Um, I think Wanaka's already shared all of the great news on our 
um, Alameda Hospital CMS validation survey with no, no findings. We are now in a full validation survey, so we are going to all pray that uh, we come clean with a very good report because there's been a lot of work that's been done. And then, um, and that is just a summary of the findings that they are assessing us during this current CMS uh, validation survey. Uh, Joint Commission, we only have one uh, open case. We were bombarded in the last few months with a lot of um, complaint, uh, submitted complaints, and um, those have all been cleared. And uh, there was just one based on this unanticipated death that occurred at John George, where they wanted us to submit additional details. And we just submit that on Tuesday, Dr. Hussain, and we're waiting to hear the results of that. Um, thank you very much for thank your you. report. Trustees, any questions on item G, patient safety and regulatory affairs? Okay, with that, I, we'll move to item uh, H, which is the T, uh, True North Metric Dashboard. This is in your packet and for your review. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, that will make that read only, unless barring any questions from the trustees. With that, we'll go to the tracking calendar. Uh, next month, we will just uh, be hearing our regular standard reports. In addition, um, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin will uh, lead a uh, discussion with us on the patient affairs landscape. We've been talking about that for a few months. I think he'll be working with Terry Lightfoot on that, is my, was my impression. Uh, patient affairs landscape at Alameda Health System. Uh, given that, we'll close item I, unless any further comments on tr uh, anyone who would like an ad hoc presentation brought forth here. This is the time where we discuss that. No? Nope. We'll close item I. Uh, we go to item J, legal counsel report. The committee met in closed session and approved the credential report to get no other action. With that, we close item J, and we are here two minutes ahead of time. That closes QPSC. Thank you very much. Bam.